0: Well, turn with me, if you have a Bible, to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12 this morning. That can be found on page 987, if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles. And to review, since I know it's been uh, several weeks until, or since we've last uh, ventured into 1 Thessalonians, um, 1 Thessalonians is set within the context where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica shortly after he had been among them. He was with the church in Thessalonica probably about six months before he wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians. He visited the church, he ministered to the church. And in the intervening period of time between when he was there and when he writes the letters, a a lot has happened, a lot transpired in the life of the church. They were faced with a lot. They were faced with persecution for one thing. And yet Paul came to find out that they were enduring in that persecution. They were thriving. They were deepening in their understanding of who Christ is and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul gives thanks in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians for how the church is maturing and thriving, even amidst all the affliction that they're experiencing. And yet for as much as Paul gives thanks for for the church, there are still some areas of growth. There are still some areas they need to be sanctified in. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul begins to dive into some of these issues, issues that they were lacking in, the first of which we studied last time was their approach to sexual ethics. But the approach today that Paul focuses in on is their approach to work. And he tells them that their approach to work very much matters, and he'll tell us just how in First Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. So with that said, hear now the word of the Lord, First Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. I'll be reading as usual out of the English Standard Version. <clears throat> now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. There's a, uh, a widely shared statistic out there, and quite honestly, I can't attest to its origins nor to its validity, uh, but the statistic asserts that the average American do- adult will spend over the course of his or her lifetime about 90,000 hours at work. If you assume that the average adult works 40 hours a week over a 45-year career, factor in two weeks of vacation um, each year, and you do the math, you get 90,000 hours. Pretty simple, even for me to do that math. Uh, Now for many of us, and, and I would assume that maybe even for most of us, when we hear that statistic, I think that might actually fall on the low end in comparison with how much we actually work. And you can adjust as you need to uh, for yourself. But whatever that number ends up being for you, I don't think any of us actually need a number to confirm that we spend a lot of time over the course of our lives working or even thinking about work. After all, just ask anyone how they're doing And in most cases, the first thing we do is lament over how busy we are at work. I've never asked anyone that question, only for them to say, I've got nothing going on, I've got all the time in the world free. Whether you have a traditional 9-to-5 job, which seems to now be an 8-to-6 job, or you're a stay-at-home mom who never gets time off, or even if you're retired and you put in a long career and you still find your time filled with things, spend a lot of time working And yet, statistics also indicate that for as much time as we work, for as busy as we are, we often lack perspective on our work. For example, 10 years ago, Gallup conducted a poll and found that only 13%, 13% of employees are actually engaged in their work. And then as Christians, apparently 80% have no idea how their faith connects to work. For some of us, we treat work as a necessity, something like a necessary evil that we just have to grind through so we can get a paycheck, rest, and then eventually retire. And then for others of us, work is everything. We're always working because we've so vested our identity in our work. We've sacrificed so much on the altar of work. And even when a supervisor points out an area of weakness in our work, we're crushed and defensive by that uh, because there could be something lacking in our work. We don't like that. This is what happens when something good becomes an ultimate thing, and yet the perspective on work that the Bible offers us fundamentally cuts through both of those approaches, the pragmatic approach on the one hand and the obsessive approach on the other. You see, according to the Bible, work is good, maybe corrupted by the fall, but theologically speaking, work is what we call a creation ordinance, something that was instituted before the fall. And although work can certainly provide us many things that we need to rest and eventually retire, the purpose of work isn't only or even primarily the procurement of things that make life easier or more enjoyable, and neither is work everything, the thing that we need to inject essential and fundamental meaning into our lives. Rather, work is good. And what Paul tells us in the passage before us is that we're called in our work to aim, not for personal glory, but for love. The purpose of work, we might say, is to love God and to love others. And Paul's focus in this passage, while not giving us a comprehensive theology of work, is on how work has to be shaped by and lead to what he calls brotherly love. It's love that shapes how we work. It's love that refines our motivations in work, and it's love that propels us forward in our work, whatever it is that the Lord has called us to do. So our big idea as we study the passage before us is this, aspire to an active love in your work. Aspire to an active love in your work. We're going to look at this passage in two parts. The first is get to work in love in verses 9 through 10, and the second is love by getting to work in verses 11 through 12. Let's begin with that first point. uh, Get to work in love in verses 9 through 10. Now, before Paul has anything to say about work, before he even implicitly corrects the approach to work that was apparently evident among some in the church in Thessalonica, and we'll talk about what that was in a moment, he reminds the church of the fundamental commitments that they have, that we have, to one another in the body of Christ. Now, what that has to do with work, we're going to discuss that eventually, but the important thing to note for now is that everything Paul is going to say in verses 11 through 12 concerning work is rooted in this larger framework of what he calls brotherly love. Again, he writes in verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now, now every church out there has issues, some have more than others, and the church in Thessalonica is no exception to that common denominator, but one of the things, according to Paul here, that they seem to get right is that they love each other as the family of God is supposed to love each other. Notice that the kind of love they're commended for is called, again, brotherly love. In Greek, that's one word. The word behind that is Philadelphia, something the city by the same name in eastern Pennsylvania doesn't do well, but that's another story. Uh, Now, in contemporary Greek of the New Testament, this word would have been used almost exclusively to refer to the solidarity that exists between blood brothers and sisters. And yet, throughout the New Testament, This is how members of Christ's church are regularly called to relate to each other. Now, perhaps we've grown so accustomed to using familial language like this to refer to each other in the church as our brothers and sisters. We use that language quite frequently in the church that we miss the impact of this language. But according to Paul in 1 Thessalonians and then really according to the entire New Testament, our approach to one another in the body of Christ is akin, it's similar to the blood bonds that exist within a family. Just think back to some of the language that Paul's already used in First Thessalonians if you've been plodding along in First Thessalonians with us. He referred to himself back in verse 7 of chapter 2 as their nursing mother. <laughs> he, he noted how when he was with them about six months earlier that he related to them as a father relates to children. And then throughout the letter, he refers to the church in Thessalonica 18 times as his brothers. Understand that when Christ draws us to himself, no, he doesn't remove the responsibilities that we have towards our blood family members, but he does forge new bonds between us and other believers. And we have fundamental responsibilities towards one another, responsibilities that reach into how we approach areas of sexual ethics. Paul addressed that back in verse six and responsibilities, as we're going to see in a moment, that reach into, that extend into issues concerning our approach to work as well. But these responsibilities of love that we carry towards one another in the body of Christ are ultimately responsibilities that emerge because Christ first loved us. Notice again in verse 9 that Paul mentions that while in Thessalonica, he didn't have to teach the church to love each other because they were already taught by God how to do that. What does that mean? Well, it's not as if he's saying that the church somehow received these tablets from heaven where, they, where God said directly, don't forget to love each other. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Rather, Paul is pointing in that phrase to the realities of regeneration and conversion, And how when the Spirit regenerates us, when the Spirit breathes new life into a person, when He renews our once-dead spiritual faculties and brings us to life in Christ, that He also softens our hearts towards the family of God. Love how John Calvin puts it. Calvin writes of the church in Thessalonica being taught by God to love one another, quote, "...love was engraven upon their hearts so that there was no need of letters written on paper." Their hearts were framed for love. You know, I recall growing up that my parents um, dreamed, like most parents do, that sibling harmony would abound in the household. Uh, Let's just say that my sister and I weren't always each other's best friends growing up, Um, and neither did we see eye to eye, but whenever we had conflict, often that I started, uh, my parents rarely deployed elaborate arguments for why I need to shape up and love my sister. Uh, In other words, my parents never gave me a pro-con list and and reasoned with me to love my sister better. They would simply declare emphatically, Andrew, she's your sister. Love her. You see, it was assumed that in the home, That the blood bond between siblings demanded that we work things out when things go awry and we do whatever it takes to strengthen those bonds rather than sever them. The same thing could be said here, too. You see, we don't need, or at least we shouldn't need, elaborate arguments for why it's good to love each other in the church because, friends, we're brothers and sisters. And when Christ drew us to himself in love, to steal Calvin's phrase, He framed us for love towards each other and the church family that we belong to. So friends, keep those bonds strong. So Paul, in this first verse then, highlights the importance of brotherly love, how the church was framed for that kind of love, and this is the really important bedrock that Paul's going to build his commands concerning work upon in just a moment. But before he turns to issues of work beginning in verse 11… He has one more thing to say about brotherly love in the context of the church in verse 10. So notice in verse 10 that Paul commends the church. He commends them not for love in the abstract, but rather for putting brotherly love into concrete practice, identifiable practice, and extending themselves in love in some kind of concrete way throughout the entirety of Macedonia. That's a region in modern-day south, south, southeastern Greece, that would have covered cities like Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea. So how then? How? How? Were they extending love in a concrete way to churches beyond the boundaries of their own city? Well, unfortunately, Paul doesn't explicitly tell us how that was the case in this passage, uh, but it may be that they were practicing self sacrificial hospitality. You know, Thessalonica in this day and age would have been a leading city in the region, it would have been a business destination for a lot of people coming to and fro in the area, including Christians who, upon traveling to Thessalonica for business, were perhaps housed by Christians in the church in Thessalonica. It may also be that the church in Thessalonica provided financial aid to support the churches in the area who were in great financial poverty. But whatever the specific manifestation of the church's love, we're not sure, but there were clearly some identifiable marks of love that cemented their reputation as a church of love throughout the region. And yet, as much as Paul commends the church for their labor of love, something he already gave thanks for back in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, he calls upon believers to continue in that, to continue exercising this tangible kind of brotherly love. You see, fruits of their love were clearly evident in some way throughout the region, but as Christians, we're always learning how to take every thought captive to obey Christ. They may have done well in expressing love in one area, but love isn't a box that you check, as if once you've fulfilled certain obligations in this area, you are then done with thinking about how it applies to other areas. There are always ways to grow in love. Now, to be sure, our abilities and resources may change over time, but this posture of love that Paul calls the church to exercise, that he calls us to exercise among our church family, just isn't optional. And so in an attempt to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, when we turn to verse 11, Paul now applies this love appeal to work. And he tells us that the way we approach our work, the way we approach our vocations out there, something that on the surface seems to have little, if anything, to do with this exhortation to exercise brotherly love, he tells us that it either adds to or impedes love. So let's lead to our second point we're considering, love by getting to work. Now, in summary, the specific issue that Paul is addressing when we turn to verse 11 is the issue of idleness, idleness, that's I-D-L-E-N-E-S-S, not I-D-O-L, idleness. Now, that might not be entirely clear in verse 11, but later in 1 Thessalonians, he calls upon the church to, quote, admonish the idle, And then in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul's even more explicit about some of the problems that continue to linger in the church in Thessalonica, and he writes in 2 Thessalonians 3, quote, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their living. You see, the issue is that some in the church were apparently idle. These are people who could have worked, people who should have worked, but they chose not to work. So why is that? Why aren't they working? Well, an answer to that question isn't entirely clear. The one possibility um, is that some might have opted out of work because they were so convinced that Christ was coming any minute that there was no point to continue in their vocations uh, there are suggestions in First and Second Thessalonians that may have been the case, and from the history of the church, we know that a similar kind of, let's call it, end times hysteria has produced a similar kind of effect. This happened as recently as 2011, when a Christian radio broadcaster in the States claimed that Jesus was going to return on May 21st, 2011, and some of his followers actually quit their jobs and left their families in anticipation of Christ's return. Something like that may have influenced members of the church in Thessalonica to quit their jobs in the first century too. That's one possible explanation behind the idleness that's apparently a problem in the church as Paul writes. But whatever the situation, and there's a number of possibilities, Paul argues that an idle approach to work when you're capable of working is antithetical to the brotherly love that's supposed to typify the church. In short, how we conduct ourselves in the public sphere, in our vocations, impacts the ideal of brotherly love in a number of ways, but how? How do these seemingly disconnected topics of love on the one hand and work on the other actually connect together? Well, for one thing, how we approach work in the public sphere can either add to or subtract from the reputation of the people of God. You see, as Christians, to have a reputation of laziness in work or cruelty towards other people in our place of work or to conduct ourselves with deception and dishonesty in our business dealings, an approach like that inevitably influences how people in the world see the church and other Christians in the church— it's possible that we could bring a bad reputation on others in the church by how we labor at work when people know we're Christians. Paul's going to say a little bit more about this when we turn to verse 12 in a minute. Second, for another thing, our, uh, our, our work affects brotherly love in that idleness towards work could lead us to unfairly burden people in the church. Uh, commentator John Stodd's pretty bold on this point when he notes that if we give up on work, when we're perfectly capable of working, quote, then we become parasites on the body of Christ. Even for Paul, who would have been within his rights to ask for funds to support his apostolic ministry, noted earlier in 1 Thessalonians that he labored as a tent maker day and night so as not to burden the church unnecessarily. Now, it's important to note that the issue for Paul isn't those who can't find work or those who really aren't able, for whatever reason, to work. Uh, There's a story from uh, World War II that comes to mind at this point where during the Sicily campaign in the European theater, General George Patton um, slapped some soldiers who were in a medical tent one day without any apparent physical injuries, but were actually suffering from shell shock. They, They couldn't have been on the front lines. They were unable to be on the front lines, but Patton apparently didn't think they were really suffering, so we slapped them for that, got in a lot of trouble for doing that. Well, understand that Paul isn't slapping people here who really are unable for whatever reason to work. In, in those situations, he would call upon blood relatives or even the church itself to, to step in and help people and as much as they're able to. But again, that's not the situation here. In the passage before us, Paul is admonishing the idol, and calling them not to unnecessarily burden other people. To assume a posture like that would just not be a mark of love. And then third, more positively perhaps, Paul's exhortation in verse 11 to work also connect with brotherly love in that work frees you to be generous in providing for the needs of your brothers and sisters in the church. In a similar vein, Paul writes this in Ephesians 428, quote, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. So, if these are all of the ways that we might add to or subtract from this ideal of brotherly love in the context of the church, well, how then does that guide our very practical approach towards work? Well, in verse 11, with some of these implied connections in mind, Paul urges essentially three eminently practical things. He gives three commands about our approach to work and how to love each other in here through a certain approach to our vocations out there. So, looking to the text now in verse 11, we hear Paul urge us first in our practical approach to work to, quote, aspire to live quietly. Or another way that could be translated, suggested by one one commentator is, quote, make it your ambition to have no ambition. Now, it's not as if Paul, in this first command here, is calling us to pursue work that's literally behind the scenes, as if the only kind of work that's valuable or honest work is work that's literally quiet, and therefore no Christian could ever be a public speaker or anything like that. That's not what Paul is saying. Rather, the situation he's speaking into is one where, on the one hand, again, there are people who are idle in the church, they're idle towards work, but on the other hand, these people have therefore then become busybodies where they've taken all of their free time and they're now using it in some way to meddle in the affairs of those inside the church or outside the church. They're apparently spinning up futile things to do, being real thorns in the side to people in the public sphere and probably acquiring bad press, a bad reputation in the process. Now, again, we don't know exactly what that looked like, but to those people, Paul instructs them to plot along in the ordinary, useful work and not concern themselves so much with their own sense of self-importance in the public sphere. Now, while the particular situation behind this first command to live quietly might seem somewhat removed or divorced from our own approach to work, I think one of the questions that this invites us to ask for ourselves, and commentator Richard Phillips is really helpful in pointing this out, is whether or not we are content in our work. You see, you might not be a public nuisance, at least I hope you're not, And you're probably not incurring a bad reputation for the church, but do you find yourself constantly dissatisfied in your work, disquieted in your job, perhaps even moving from one job to the next to the next solely because you're chasing that dream job that you haven't quite landed? Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with changing jobs or finding jobs that are better suited to your phase of life, but Paul's commands here at the very least invite some probing about whether we have steady and quiet hearts towards our work, especially if we find ourselves aimless or constantly discontented in our work. Now, a few weeks ago at Harvest's uh, men's retreat, uh, we probed some of these questions about contentment something that I think a lot of us struggle with. And we talked about how rather than chasing that dream job, which rarely exists or steamrolling other people in the pursuit of our dreams, that we need to learn contentment in the ordinary stuff that God calls us into. I think theologian Michael Horton is really helpful here. And in commenting on this issue in general, Horton writes this, he says, quote, in most cases, impatience with the ordinary is the root of our restlessness and rootlessness we're looking for something more to charge our lives with interest, meaning, and purpose. But instead of growing like a tree, we want to grow like a forest fire. And yet the issue is that rather than cultivating brotherly love, that discontented approach to work may inadvertently end up consuming people like a forest fire who we're actually called to love. Friends, the kind of loving work that Paul calls us to is a contented work. It's a grounded work. It's a faithful work. Now, maybe you're in a situation right now where you really don't want to be doing what you're doing, or you really don't want to be working where you're working. And again, there's nothing wrong with looking at other options in your vocation. But in that, it's always worth asking ourselves the question, how do Paul's commands here with respect to work challenge my approach to work? Now, when we turn to the second command in verse 11, this command to mind your own affairs, Paul is essentially claiming something very similar to what he just said. He's essentially calling us again not to be so aimless in our approach to work that we begin to meddle in the affairs of other people or even judge how other people are doing their work and and what they're doing. Instead, Paul would essentially tell us to stick to what you've been called to, to learn contentment in your own vocation and stay out of the business of judging the worthwhile pursuits of other people. But it's also important, lest we misunderstand what Paul is saying here, to qualify this, because Paul's also not saying that it's okay to neglect people in the church. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we hear this command, mind your own affairs, and the introverts among us think to ourselves, I love that because I don't have to get involved in people's lives. But sorry to disappoint you, that's not what Paul means. Otherwise, he'd be undercutting the whole framework in which these commands are given, this framework of an active and thoughtful brotherly love. Instead, Richard Phillips rightly notes that when it comes to our brothers who are suffering— or our brothers and sisters who are stuck in sin, their business very much becomes our business in the body of Christ. It's healthy when members of the body of Christ know what's going on in each other's lives and take an active interest in the lives of each other. But it's not our business decidedly to judge the faithful work of others, especially if we have a questionable relationship with our own work, which is why Paul says, mind your own affairs. And then finally, in the last of his practical commands towards work, Paul encourages us to, quote, work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, understand that in the Greco-Roman world in which Paul's writing what he has to say here, manual labor, and that's, that's essentially what he's referring to when he says work with your own hands. He's referring to manual labor. That was considered to be um, something that slaves did in the ancient world. It was menial work, it was lesser work that those in higher social positions would look down upon and judge. And yet Paul encourages his readers that if that's the kind of work God has called you to, do that work. In God's eyes, as long as it doesn't require you to sin, it's noble and worthwhile work. And so don't anxiously seek at every turn to get out of that work only to fall into idleness where you're then meddling in the affairs of other people. And don't be like the world that despises those kind of vocations. But as a church, seeking to exercise brotherly love in our work, in our vocations, the implications of this last command reach beyond the kind of jobs that we find ourselves in because it also has implications into how we look at the jobs that other people in our church family have, and work into. You see, traditionally, in American life, there's been something of a a divide between those who have traditionally blue-collar jobs and those with traditionally white-collar jobs, where one group sees the other group as doing lesser work, and that group sees the other as not doing honest work. And yet, the goal, as long as it's not sin— is that we would learn to value and prize the great diversity of work among us rather than disparaging that different kind of work. Friends, the church is, is the one place where people come together united in Christ who do a bunch of different things and yet come together as one family. The church includes those with traditional blue-collar jobs and those with traditional white-collar jobs. It includes the stay-at-home moms, the students, those who have labored over a lifetime and are now retired, the butchers, the bakers, and candlestick makers. So rather than despising and patronizing those who do something different than you or developing for yourself a kind of martyr complex about how much more difficult your job is than anybody else's, the goal for us is to cultivate brotherly love through the full range of vocations among us as a church. But as Paul moves beyond these eminently practical ways that he calls us to approach a loving work, he closes out our passage by reminding us and rooting us in the purpose of this vision he articulates for loving work. Again, in verse 12, Paul wraps up all of these commands concerning our posture towards work by reminding us that the purpose of that approach is quote, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now we've already noted a little bit earlier how one of the points of connection between this kind of mature and faithful approach to work on the one hand and brotherly love on the other lies in this issue of reputation. How we conduct ourselves in the workplace when people know that we profess Christ either contributes to a negative or a positive impression of Christians and to the church, to the world. And yet, Paul, um, Paul gets at the importance of this elsewhere in uh, various other places where he writes in Colossians 4 5 that we are called to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And Peter gets at this too in 1 Peter 2.12 where he says, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, to be sure, we can't control what other people outside the church ultimately think about us, but Paul's exhortation here in verse 12 is essentially give those outsiders no ammunition, no reason uh, to hurl against you, hurl insults against you as the people of God. And so are you working laboring in your vocation with this first aim in mind? And more than that, positively speaking, does your work in any way evidence the love of Christ to a world that knows little more than biting and devouring in the workplace? Well, as Paul closes out our passage, he roots our work in one more purpose. He tells us that we, he encourages us that we would work in all of the ways that he just explained at the end of verse 12, so that we would be dependent upon no one. Now, it's important to note that this vision for our work has nothing to do with not collaborating with other people at work or, or you're not able to ask people for help at work when we need it. That's not what Paul means here. Rather, he's calling us to work in such a way that doesn't unnecessarily burden other people or take advantage of them. Fundamentally, he's calling us to work in such a way that gives rather than takes. And yet, ironically, the only way for us to work according to that kind of self-giving independence is actually for us to be dependent upon the one who gave himself for us, Jesus Christ. You see, to be in a position where we could ever hope to give of ourselves in love through our work and be dependent upon no one necessitates that we first and fundamentally be poor and powerless before God that we take to heart the reality that were we left to ourselves, we'd run headlong into this self-serving approach to work, and we wouldn't think anything of it. But when God sets us apart through faith in Christ and adopts us into His family, and new fraternal bonds are forged in Jesus' church, friends, that changes everything about our approach to work. We work not to make a name for ourselves. After all, we've been given a new and better name in Christ. We work not to build our own little kingdoms for ourselves. After all, we've inherited in Christ a better kingdom than we could ever hope to build for ourselves. Rather, we work in order to love each other because, friends, we have been loved first in Jesus Christ, So, as we prepare to close and then turn our attention to the Lord's Supper where we remember Christ's unrepeatable work of redemption for our salvation, let me leave us with this closing thought. In whatever kind of work you do, even if you're not yet in the workforce or you're retired from the workforce, keep love at the heart of all your work. Again, there's Of course, nothing wrong with meeting our own needs through work. Work inevitably allows us to do that, but work also frees us for so much more. And so rather than thinking in your work, in your vocations, only about yourself, pursue above all things the glory and honor of God and the love of those family bonds that Jesus Christ has forged through Him and Him alone. And whatever you do, aspire to a loving work. Pray with me. Father, we give You thanks for how You have set us apart in Christ, how in love You have brought us to Yourself when we weren't looking for You, when we wanted nothing to do with You, and then adopting us into Your family, into the family of God. You've put new desires in our heart by Your Spirit to love those in our body. I pray, Lord, that as we think about what it means and the many implications of loving each other in our church family, uh, that You would help us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and to seek to connect the dots and even seek to love our church family and other people in our world through our vocations, that rather than taking an obsessive or pragmatic approach to work, that You would help us, Lord, to take a loving approach to work because You have first loved us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.